This episode of the podcast is a long one, almost as long as the song we're talking about. We're talking about Paradise by the Dashboard Light by Meatloaf. Let's get into it. Super Hits Podcast, and yeah, we're going to be talking about Meatloaf, my favorite dish. Uh, maybe not my favorite artist. And uh, I'm Alan. I'm going to be leading you through this one. Jamie, taking one more week off of the cast, but should be joining us in a week's time. So, again, uh, brought on a more than capable guest who said he would only come on if we talked about his favorite artist and his favorite song, uh, Paradise by the Dashboard Light by Meatloaf. Uh, hello, Barry. Hello. How is everybody out there in podcast land? Like I said, uh, I am a big meatloaf mark, and uh, I think that'll come out uh, glowingly through this uh, through this podcast. But uh, no, um, uh, you know, you you asked for a, a song, and I immediately <laughs> came with this one as what I wanted to do. And I was more interested to see what your reaction would be to it than actually going through it. But I, I'm here. I'm glad to be here. And it's my third time on. And of the three songs I've done so far, two of them are about banging. So I don't know what that <laughs> says about me. Says a lot. I'm telling yeah. you. All right, well, uh, let's uh, just uh, jump right into this one, shall we? Let's do it. All right, so Meatloaf, uh, in case you were wondering, was not born with that name. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, His real name is Michael Lee Day, and he is an American rock singer, or was an American rock singer. He dead, everyone. And uh, actor known for his powerful, wide-ranging voice and theatrical live shows. And his most known trilogy, he's put out a ton of albums, but the ones that everyone knows the most about are the uh, Bat Out of Hell uh, albums. So there's Bat Out of Hell from 1977, Bat Out of Hell 2, Back Into Hell from 1993, and Bat Out of Hell 3, The Monster is Loose from 2006. And like, you know, I'm not a Meatloaf fan. I'll just get that out of the way right now. Uh, but so I may be wrong in this. Maybe you can correct me, but I'm assuming the third of those albums was like by far the least, like, you know, yes. least productive, the least, uh, commercially successful. Yeah. yeah. I think the third one was going to the well once too often. I, I understand the second one. Okay. Let's, let's play off the first one and how popular it was and say, okay, I haven't had a hit in a while. So let's call it better to hell too. I'll, I'll get a few album sales out of that. Uh-huh. But when you, when you do it a second time, <laughs> go to better to hell three. He's like, you know what? I think you're trying to milk it a bit too much here now. Yeah. He was born in Dallas. Meatloaf stated in an interview that when he was born, he was bright red and stayed that way for days. And that his father said he looked like nine pounds of ground chunk (laughs) um, and convinced the hospital staff to put the name Meat on his crib. Uh, He was later called ML in reference to his initials. But when his weight increased, his seventh grade classmates referred to him as Meatloaf. Uh, He was five. Foot- your dad say, "I want to, I want to put meat on your <laughs> your crib when you're in the hospital." I always take these stories with a grain of salt. Uh, yeah, I believe the kids make uh, calling a meatloaf in school though. He was five foot two and two hundred and forty pounds. So, <laughs> yeah. Jeez. Uh, in 1965, yeah. he uh, graduated from Thomas Jefferson High School. He had appeared in school stage productions of Where's Charlie and the Music Man. He also played football. He was a defensive tackle, uh, but. Probably wanted to maybe wanted to end up with the Cowboys, but didn't end up working out that way. No, I guess when you're five two two forty, I guess football a linebacker or <laughs> offensive lineman's a good uh, good bet. Yeah, uh, in nineteen sixty seven, when he was nineteen, his mother died from cancer, and his father uh, barely missed when trying to stab him with a knife, oh, falsely accusing him of having girls in his bedroom. 
Uh, have you seen the movie uh, Tenacious D in the Pick of Destiny? Yes, I have. So Meatloaf does a cameo where he plays like the angry father who hates his son's rock and roll dreams. So yeah. you can see the inspiration, I think. Yeah. Yeah. Art yeah. imitating life. Yeah. He used the inheritance he received from his mother's death to rent an apartment in Dallas and isolated himself for three and a half months until a friend found him. A short time later, he went to the airport and caught a flight to Los Angeles. And then... <laughs> He, it, I mean, he was already a big dude, but apparently he intentionally gained another 60 pounds so that he would fail a physical examination for the Vietnam War draft. <laughs> That's one way dodging the draft, I suppose. Yeah. Uh, so in L.A., he formed his first band called Meatloaf Soul, which is a hideous name. The band received several recording contracts. Uh, they went over several lineup changes, and they also changed their name a few times. They had names like... Uh, Popcorn Blizzard and Floating Circus. Um, they had some successes. Floating Circus opening for The Who, The Fugs, The Stooges, MC5, The Grateful Dead. And they had some success with a single called Once Upon a Time. Uh, but then uh, when that kind of fizzled out, Meatloaf joined the Los Angeles production of the musical Hair. So uh, he eventually received an invitation by Motown in Detroit. And so... Uh, yeah, I guess he makes the move over to, uh, the Motor City and he ends up recording, uh, some, uh, music with fellow hair performer, Sean Stoney Murphy on an album of songs written and selected by the Motown production team. The album was called Stoney and Meatloaf. <laughs> Money. Yeah. It was released in 1971 and, uh, it had a couple, couple of, uh, singles, some success on uh, the Billboard uh, Soul Singles chart and the Billboard Hot 100, but nothing major. So then in the early 70s, he continues to work off Broadway. He was cast in in the original L.A. Roxy cast of the Rocky Horror Picture Show, uh, playing the parts of Eddie and Dr. Everett Scott. And uh, this led to them filming the, the yep. movie. And he played only Eddie. And yeah, so, and I mean, everybody yeah. knows Meatloaf from that. If you're a fan, I am, uh, I will admit, have still never watched that movie. Arlo, our co-host on Narbles and Brewpeds would be horrified. She goes and sees it regularly. Does she go and like scream to the, yes. to the like talk along to the screen and all that kind of stuff? She yeah. does, yeah. I've seen, it's one of those movies, you know, it's on TV every Halloween and you watch five minutes here and there. I think that's, I've seen the Meatloaf part in the movie. Um, but uh, I don't think I've ever seen it from beginning to end. If you were to put a gun to my head now and say, what's this movie about? I wouldn't be able to tell you. Um, one thing Meatloaf did say about this was that uh, in the movie, he only played Eddie, not the two characters he played on stage. And he says that decision uh, made the movie not as good as the musical. So, <laughs> Meatloaf got a bit of an ego, I think. Yeah, yeah, of course. Uh, so now around the same time, Meatloaf is working with songwriter Jim Steinman, and they are starting to work on Bad Out of Hell, which I'll get to shortly. But I do need to talk about Jim Steinman. Uh, to a certain extent, I was like, is he like the Bernie Taupin of, you know, to Elton John yeah. of like Jim Steinman and Meatloaf? Kind, kind of. But he also wrote music for other artists. And some of his credits include Total Eclipse of the Heart, yeah. Making Love Out of Nothing at All, It's All Coming Back to Me, the Celine Dion song. And he has written for artists such as Sisters of Mercy, Barry Manilow, and Boyzone. Like, what wow. a range. Yeah, I know, I know the Celine Dion song. I know that Meatloaf thought that was originally written for him, and he ended up recording. I think it, that one's on the Monster Is Loose. Yeah, 
and I think there was a bit of a, a falling out between Steinman and Meatloaf over that song. He yep. thought that, uh, yeah, okay. Yep, uh, he uh, did a quite a bit of uh, work with Andrew Lloyd Webber as well, and, I, and then I just wrote I could go on and on about him, but he was yeah. prolific. But yep. but yes, when uh, Bad Out of Three, Bad Out of Hell Three was released, the album's title became the subject of a legal battle between Steinman and Meatloaf. Steinman had registered a trademark on the title Bad Out of Hell in 1995 and sought to prevent Meatloaf from using the title for some reason. Like I haven't yeah. read all the stories, but like I'm not quite sure why. Yeah. I guess they had a falling out at some point, and I guess he figured that... I, I mean, I don't know either. I didn't read it up, but I, I'm assuming he feels like he's the real talent of the, of the, of the, <laughs> the operation. He says, I should be making money off this, not you, because I did all the work. You're just singing the songs, I suppose. Yeah, Meatloaf sought to cancel Steinman's trademark and use the title. Aside from the trademark case, he sued Steinman and longtime manager David Sonnenberg for $50 million each. Wow. An out-of-court settlement was reached, ending the legal cases, allowing Meatloaf to use the title for this album and allowing him to release his recordings of the songs In the Land of the Pig, the Butcher is King. <laughs> like, you went to court for that. <laughs> 50 mil for that. Yeah, yeah. Uh, the agreement did allow Steinman to use the title Jim Steinman's Bad Out of Hell for a musical theater project based on the songs from Bad Out of Hell. Yeah. Uh, so I said, despite all this, it appears Steinman and Meatloaf continue to work together. When Steinman passed away in 2021, Meatloaf reacted to his death by saying, we didn't know each other, we were each other. And I always think, find this stuff funny. Like, okay, so Barry, you and I and, you know, a cast of other people do a podcast together uh, yep. about Degrassi called Narbles and Broomheads. Like, if we monetized the podcast and then went to court and, like, sued the shit out of each other... <laughs> I just don't know if the podcast would continue. No, I don't think so. No, yeah. <laughs> but uh, in this case, nope. We uh, we still love each other. Just sued each other for a hundred million dollars. Whatever. Exactly. And hey, let's be honest. I mean, uh, where would Meatloaf be without Jim Steinman? No offense to Meatloaf, but yeah. I think you know all those biggest hits were all were all Jim Steinman productions. So I, I really think he wouldn't have, he wouldn't have been nearly where he was without uh, without uh, Steinman's uh, contributions to his career. So in 1979, Steinman started to work on Bad for Good, the intended follow-up to Bad Out of Hell. During that time, a combination of touring, drugs, and exhaustion had caused Meatloaf to lose his voice. Without a singer he uh, and pressured by the record company, Steinman decided he would sing Bad for Good himself. Oh. Uh, the album had mixed reviews, but was a commercial success, particularly in the UK. Another theme you're going to hear throughout this podcast, yeah. Meatloaf is known and has had a lot of success in the United States, much more in the United Kingdom. Yeah, for sure. Uh, One thing I came across when the, um, during that tour in 1978, Meatloaf jumped off a stage in Ottawa and he broke his leg. So he had to finish the rest of the tour in a wheelchair. Can you imagine like being, having to catch him? Yeah, just imagine yeah, stage dive. You see Meatloaf jumping off. I wouldn't catch him either. <laughs> Let him splat. So Jim Steinman then wrote a new album for Meatloaf called Dead Ringer, which was released in 1981. Again, did well in the UK, less so in the US. Meatloaf released a number of other albums in the 80s, which I just said I would call remarkable. Um, <laughs> if you're a big Meatloaf fan and you're like, fuck off, like this album in 1984 was a great success, send your complaints to superitspodcast at gmail.com. Uh, he also did collaborative work with other artists, some acting work, and he even did stand-up comedy. Oh, really? I like I said, I, I didn't know until like Bad Out of Hell Two came out. I didn't know there was anything he did between Bad Out of Hell and Bad Out of Hell Two. But uh, I know he did that Dead Ringer for Love is, is a duet with Cher, if I'm not mistaken. Yeah, uh, I but, I um yeah, like I was just like, did he just do <laughs> those two albums and then whatever came after? Like, 
Yeah. Would have never guessed there was stuff in between. No, I, I did. I didn't know until. And, well, I knew now, but I, I didn't know it. Like when Better Health Two came out, I didn't realize there was anything he'd done. Like I, I figured he's just living off the, off the, the royalties of the first one. So yeah. Um. So they released Bad Out of Hell Two in 1993. It was a huge success. 15 million copies uh, sold, and of course they had the single "I Do Anything for Love." Open parenthesis, but I won't do that. Close parenthesis. A yep. number one song in 28 countries. Uh, Meatloaf won the Grammy Award for Best Rock Vocal Performance Solo, and the song was number one in the UK for seven consecutive weeks. So, big yeah, hit. Man. I believe uh, on the uh, uh, the Mezzanine Sleepover podcast, you and uh, Megamix rated that song as one of the worst number one hits of all time. The song is mistaken. awful, in my opinion. You probably love it, though. So yeah. <laughs> We'll get to that. But. Okay. Uh, more albums followed, but I'm not going to get into much more detail because we still have a lot to unpack. As I mentioned, Meatloaf was in Tenacious D in the Pick of Destiny, and his acting credits on television and movies are both extensive and impressive. Uh, he did pass away in 2022 from COVID. Yeah. Uh, at the time of his death, TMZ reported that Meatloaf had spoken out against maxi uh, vaccine mandates during the pandemic. I'm just going to shrug my shoulders and move on. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, from from an acting point of view, but my favorite Meatloaf role is definitely uh, Fight Club. Oh, th- describe the role. Uh, his name was was it Robert Pollard? Pollardson. He had he had bitch tits. Uh-huh. <laughs> yeah, he was a, a a man that had I, I can't remember the thing, but yeah, he had he, he had what was called bitch tits, and yeah, I guess he joined the Fight Club to, as as a way to uh, connect with other people. Uh, the role he was born to play. Yeah. Uh, so Bad Out of Hell 1 is his debut album. Uh, it was produced by Todd Rundgren, and uh, Todd Rundgren is a pretty prolific producer, but was also falsely named as Liv Tyler's father for the first 10 years of her life. Really? Yep. Uh, so that's who, you know, before they found out that it was uh, Steven Tyler, she thought it was Todd Rund- Rundgren. Um, she stated, though, that while he isn't her biological father, he was still a good dad. Uh, <laughs> did, did, did Steve Tyler know that uh, he was the father? Um, I actually didn't read into it. I, I mean, okay. probably not. <laughs> Who knows? Okay, she, so she changed her name afterwards. Um, okay. I wonder how he felt about uh, her real father, like sticking her in those videos and looking all sexy. <laughs> so, yeah, that's right. <laughs> yeah. Uh, in one nineteen eighty nine interview with Classic Rock Magazine, Jin Steinman labeled Todd Rundgren the only genuine genius I've ever worked with. In a 1989 interview with Red Beard in the uh, for the In the Studio with Red Beard episode on the making of the album, Meatloaf said that he initially found Rundgren to be cocky, but grew to like him. Rundgren found the album Bad Out of Hell hilarious, thinking it was a parody of Bruce Springsteen. <laughs> uh, okay. The album was developed from a musical, Neverland, a futuristic rock version of Peter Pan, which Diamond wrote for a workshop in 1974. It was recorded in 1975 and 1976 at various studios, including Bearsville Studios in Woodstock, New York. And it was released by, now don't get too excited, Barry, Cleveland International and Epic yeah, Records. Right. Yes. Yeah, right. What songs on this album have anything to do with Peter Pan? Like, <laughs> like Bad Out of Hell, the three songs were Bad Out of Hell, uh, Heaven Can Wait, and All Revved Up, but No Place to Go. Now, <laughs> I don't know where Peter Pan fits in any of those songs whatsoever. There's no scene in Peter Pan where Peter and Wendy are trying to fuck in the back of the car. <laughs> <laughs> Revving motorcycles and doing wheelies and yeah. all this kind of stuff. 
Uh, Bat Out of Hell has sold over 43 million copies worldwide. It is certified 14 times platinum by the RIAA. It is also the best-selling album in Australia, mm-hmm. uh, being certified 26 times platinum. Wow. As of June 2019, it has spent 522 weeks on the UK Albums Chart, the second longest chart run by a studio album. Uh, a trivia tidbit... Uh, the album was first aired in the UK by DJ Terry Shaw after being sent by mistake four weeks before the album was supposed to be oh. officially released. Oh, wow. Uh, so, yeah. Uh, Jim Steinman is credited with the album con- uh, cover concept, which it was illustrated by Richard Corbin. It depicts a motorcycle ridden by a long-haired man bursting out of the ground in a graveyard. In the background, a large bat perches atop a mausoleum that towers above the rest of the tombstones. In 2001, Q Magazine listed the cover as number 71 in the list of the 100 best record covers of all time. I, I know that our pal uh, Ted has thought this, Jamie has thought this, but is there an album cover that does not depict the music on the album? More <laughs> yeah, than this no, I think one. that's the most misleading album cover of all time. <laughs> totally. Great cover, though. Like You're like, bat out of hell, look at this cover, it's totally heavy metal. And uh, it's a musical, everybody. And you took the words right out of my mouth. <laughs> Not exactly. Motorcycles in the, in the, in the graveyard, is it? Uh, Steinman had wanted equal billing with Meatloaf on the album's title. He wanted it to be called Jim Steinman Presents or Jim and Meat. <laughs> <laughs> they should have went with Jim and Meat, yeah. definitely. Uh, for marketing reasons, the record company wished to make Meatloaf the recognizable name. As a compromise, the song, the words songs by Jim Steinman appear relatively prominently on the cover. And while Jim and Meat sounds silly to me, is it that much worse than Meatloaf? Yeah, I guess not. No. <laughs> uh, so finally, we get to Paradise by the Dashboard Light. It was released as a single in August of 1978 in the U.S. and October 27th, 1978 in the U.K., of course, it first appeared on the album Bad Out of Hell. The lyrics are by Meatloaf alongside Ellen Foley. An yeah. uncommonly long song for a single. Uh, it has become a classic of a uh, staple of classic rock radio. And uh, some have described it as one of the greatest rock duets ever. Yep. Uh, the, the track is number six on the original seven track LP. So it appears on the B side. In the LP track list, the song is divided into three parts. Part one is Paradise, second part is Let Me Sleep On It, and part three is Praying for the End of Time. Uh, Steinman, Meatloaf, and Ellen Foley, who had been cast as Wendy in Neverland. So again... <laughs> oh, there you go. <laughs> Real Peter Pan connection to this album. Also, when I think of Peter Pan, like Meatloaf? <laughs> yeah, <that's right. laughs> yeah. Like Peter Pan could fly. <laughs> Meatloaf ain't flying yeah. anywhere. Yeah. Um, they had worked. To, they had worked together on the National Lampoon Road Tour, where the singers had a history of performing over-the-top musical comedy sketches together. Uh, so both Steinman and producer Todd Rundgren were influenced by Phil Spector and his Wall of Sound. Uh, we talked about Phil Spector when yeah. uh, a few episodes ago. He's a piece of shit, everybody. Just yeah, not a good guy. No. Yeah. Uh, so there you go. Jim Steinman had stated that he wanted to write the ultimate car sex song. <laughs> <laughs> in which everything goes horribly wrong in the end. So they rehearsed for about 10 days. The song was recorded at Bearsville Studios. And uh, on guitar, we had Todd Rundgren, Rundgren's Utopia bandmates, Chasm uh, Sultan on bass and Roger Powell on synthesizer, Roy Batan and Max Weinberg of Bruce Springsteen's E Street Band on piano and yep. drums. So there's 
Probably why he thought it was a joke album. Yeah, sorry. Foley recorded her singing part in one take. Ellen Foley would go on to have a solid career in music and film. Uh, she was in Fatal Attraction and uh, Cocktail, which, okay. <laughs> which for some reason I misspelled as Cocktain. So, <laughs> uh, the credit that stood out for me though for this woman was that she appeared in four episodes of the TV series Ghostwriter. Okay, fantastic. <laughs> Yeah, well, the credit for me would be uh, she did one season as Billy, the uh, defense attorney on Night Court. Oh, nice. All right. Yeah, that's that's who I remember from specifically. Uh, it, it took me a long time to realize, is that the person on the Meatloaf song? And uh, I have looked it up several times because I guess we'll get we'll get to the part when we get to the video that it's not the same person. But uh, uh-huh. that's why I wasn't sure if it was her or not. But yes, it was. Uh, in a 2022 interview with the New York Times after Meatloaf passed away, Foley said, who would have thought that at the end of the 70s, the 300-pound-plus guy would be a star? But that's what it was. He was a character, you know, larger than life. But then, she says, he came at the right time. People were ready for this. People were ready to come out of the laid-back Fleetwood Mac 70s, and he had an extraordinary voice. I don't know if he ever took a voice lesson. I think he came out pretty full-formed. First time I ever saw him walk into a re- rehearsal hall, he was meatloaf. He knew what he was. I probably... <laughs> Yeah, I guess so. So, there is a baseball play-by-play section in the song. Yep. It was written specifically for New York Yankees announcer Phil Rizzuto, uh, using phrases he would actually say while announcing. Uh, And it was recorded by Rizzuto with Steinman and Rundgren at the Hit Factory in New York in 1976. Now, get this. Phil Rizzuto publicly maintains that he was unaware that his contribution would be equated with sex. Oh, come on. (laughs) Come on, dude. (laughs) Like, seriously. He's like, oh, it's a baseball song? Yeah, that's right. (laughs) Dashboard light. Totally makes sense. Yeah, that's right. Uh, Meatloaf asserts that Rizzuto was fully aware of the context when uh, when he was recording and feigned ignorance only to stifle criticism. Uh, Meatloaf felt that the original mix of Paradise by the Dashboard Light rendered the song unsuitable for inclusion on the album. After after several attempts, uh, John Jansen remixed the version, and uh, that's the one that is on the album. So, what else have we got here? The album version clocks in at 8 minutes and 28 seconds. Oof. uh, Right right in the wheelhouse of of this podcast, what they like the times to be. Oh, perfect length. (laughs) Yeah. <laughs> but don't worry, everybody. The single version was shortened. Uh, it was trimmed down to a nice seven minutes and 55 seconds. <laughs> My go. God. One of the longest songs to be released uncut on one side of a seven-inch 45 RPM record. The only difference between the version on the album and the full version uh, as the single is that the uh, single fades out immediately after the final line is sung, uh, sung. In some countries, they got this down to five minutes and 32 seconds. Uh, The largest change is the complete removal of the baseball section. And according to Meatloaf on VH1 Storytellers, the original length of the track was supposed to be 27 minutes. Yeah, that would have been something, wouldn't it? No. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I I actually have the 5 minute and 30 second uh, 7 inch. I don't don't know. Oh, yeah? I I bought it at Value Village. I don't don't know where it came from from there, but yeah. I have to double check. I've got... I talk about my version in a sec. I don't know what the length was, though. Yeah. Uh, there are 26 versions of this that were listed on Discogs. I realized as I looked through them uh, that actually I said I don't. Um, you know what? I know. I didn't own a copy. I actually just ordered one. Oh, okay. Headed to Buffalo in a week and a half, and I'll pick it up. 
most of the releases are on 7-inch record, though there are a few 12-inch releases as well. There are a few re-releases out of Europe and Australia in 1988 that include CD singles. Uh, the B-side on most of the 7-inch releases is called the Bat Overture. On the 12-inch singles, they have the full song along with versions with and without the baseball play-by-play. Uh, the cover for the single is basically the same cover as Bat Out of Hell. <laughs> uh, but the title says Rock and Roll Dreams Come Through In and then in all caps Paradise by the Dashboard Light an epic single from the epic Cleveland International Platinum LP Meatlo- uh, Meatloaf Bad Out of Hell um, I said I think the song title would have been sufficient yeah I think so yeah. <laughs> uh, the back cover contains the full lyrics uh, Meatloaf has a whole bunch of compilation albums many of which feature the song uh, some of note uh, the big ones Hits Out of Hell Anthology. Uh, here's a little uh, little joke. Prime cuts. Uh-huh. <laughs> there you go. Paradise by the Dashboard Light, the very best of the collection. Definitive collection, the very best of Meatloaf, and piece of the action, the very best of Meatloaf. Uh, it also appears on a number of other compilation albums, though I suspect that uh, a number of labels used other Meatloaf songs that were shorter. Um, yep. I didn't actually grab any examples in this case. Um, according to setlist.fm, the first live performance of the song took place on November 8th, 1977 in West Orange, New Jersey. The final place was on July 2nd, 2016 at Mosaic Place in Moose Jaw, Saskatchewan. Oh, there you go. <laughs> yeah. There weren't a lot of instances where artists uh, covered this song, though it appears that Moxie Fruvis covered this once in 1999. Do you remember Moxie Fruvis? I do not. Moxie Fruvis, a uh, Canadian band from Toronto. They kind of uh, had one album. They, they had a cover of Spider-Man. They were like a, oh, okay. like a busking kind of group. Um, they released a few albums. Uh, I liked them when I was younger because they were like along the same lines of Bare Naked Ladies when they were doing like Gordon. Oh, okay. Um, and probably most famous for, unfortunately, um, including Gian Gameshi as one of their <laughs> band oh, members. Oh, oh boy. So, yeah. Uh, I didn't find any pro wrestlers who used this song as their theme music. Yeah, no, I can't imagine this one being a a good theme song. Uh, Though I did see that I Do Anything for Love was used as a theme song by Beef Wellington and AEW commentator Excalibur. Beef Wellington as in the the old uh, uh, AWA guy? Yeah, I think so. Um, and, and Excalibur, they were in CZW in 2005 and 2006, and apparently their tag team was called Team Masturbation. <laughs> <laughs> yep. Excellent. Uh, the, in 2003, General Motors used this in commercials to promote their 24-hour test drive. The campaign was titled Sleep On It. In 2008, the song was reworked for the use in a commercial for the AT&T GoPhone. It stars Meatloaf as a dad whose son asks him for a device. Let me sleep on it, Loaf replies. Uh, (laughs) So yeah, there you go. And uh, the song is featured in a few movies. We have This Is 40 and King of the Hill, uh, the television show, and uh, Glee. Oh, yeah. Everyone's favorite. Yeah. Acapella group, the Dartmouth Aries uh, sang, or sorry, the Dartmouth Airs sang this song in the 2011 season finale of the American television show, The Sing-Off. They won second place. Uh, Supposedly, Tom Cruise performed a lip sync battle of this song on The Tonight Show starring Jimmy Fallon. Uh, Mm. Again, I'm sure Jimmy Fallon was like, 
that was so awesome. I was, it was yeah, cool. Oh my god, it was just so cool. And uh, <laughs> in terms of uh, live performance recordings of the song that have been included on Meatloaf albums, we have live at Wembley, live around the world, and Bat Out of Hell live with the Melbourne Symphony Orchestra. Um, have you seen Meatloaf live? I have not. Uh, Sarah has my girlfriend, okay. and I'm going to tell a story very shortly about okay. her experience. I, I've seen you live twice, actually. In Newfoundland? Once in Newfoundland, once in Oshawa. Oh, nice. And how was it? Oh, fantastic. Yeah, he could sing? Uh, oh, yeah, it was good. Yeah, I know in his later year, I didn't see him. Like, I know I've seen, you know, recent uh, in the last three or four years, and yeah, it's not good. <laughs> but uh, <laughs> when I saw him, he was great. The, the album itself, it really did, and, and you kind of touched on this, but they really had a hard time getting it made. Like a lot of people, they tried to shop it around, and no one would, would take a chance on it. And uh, and you you mentioned the, that some of the E Street guys run up, but Stephen Van Zandt, Mister <laughs> Mister Silvio himself, uh, he contacted someone directly. Who uh, that's how he first got this album into the Cleveland Records, which I thought was an interesting uh, tidbit. Silvio applying some pressure. That's right. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, the baseball reference—I don't know if it, well, this is probably part of the lyrics part anyway—but I'll say it here now that the baseball reference is this is this came from Song Facts. It's strategically wrong because no baseball team uses the squeeze play with two out. <laughs> That's right. Yeah, and I, you know what? I did notice this when I was a kid, or whenever you know, at some point, I was like, "Why would he run the squeeze play and there's two outs? It doesn't make any sense." Ah, <laughs> uh, you fucking baseball nerds. Yeah, that's right. All right, well, let's talk about these lyrics in more detail. All right. All right, so usually uh, when I post these lyrics, it doesn't take up a lot of space. Uh, this takes up uh, three pages in Word. Yeah, a lot, uh, lot, of, lot, of, lot of words in this song. Yeah, like, and there are no musical interludes in this, right? Like, it is, no. when you say it's an eight-minute song, they are singing lyrics throughout, and there aren't, there's no, um, like, there's, there's the Sea Paradise by the Dashboard Light is the chorus, but I think it's only sung a couple of times. Yeah, it's like the song takes like there, like you said, there's three sections, and some people say there's four sections when you add the uh, the baseball part of it, and it's like each one is different too, right? So it's one of those songs that changes a lot over the the course of the <laughs> of the eight minutes. Um, so Jamie couldn't make it to this podcast, but I had to uh, get him to tell me a story. Uh, during the 2002 World Cup, Jamie and our friend Kit Tetris were watching the games live. They were, uh, I think, they were in Korea. Uh, okay. So they were on at like two in the morning uh, in Winnipeg, and by the end of uh, the night, they were just you know super delirious from uh, lack of sleep, and yep. for some reason, uh, I think it was Lawrence just started singing, "Can I sleep all day? <laughs> Can I sleep all day?" <laughs> and uh, and just Jamie and him cracked up again, probably because of lack of sleep. But till to this day, um, they still will sometimes bust out a "Can I sleep all day," which is not the lyric, everybody, by the way. No. Uh, the song is about a teenage boy trying to convince a girl to have sex with him in a car. Uh, sex would be the paradise for him. Yeah. But she holds out until he says he loves her and will stay with her forever. Overcome by passion, he does and honors his word to spend the rest of her life with her, even though he can't stand her. Yeah, he, hope, he hopes the, the world will end any time now so that he won't have to be with her anymore. Uh, as you said, the baseball reference is wrong. Because yep. they try to run a squeeze play. Uh, so the explanation from Song Facts, with two outs, all the defense has to do is pick the ball up and throw to first, and you are out of the inning. So yeah. there you go. So no, Meatloaf doesn't get lucky when he runs that squeeze play. Yes. Uh, the song is actually divided into four parts. On the album, it lists as three, but the song is in four. We've got part one, Paradise. 
The song opens with a male and female character reminiscing about days as a young high school couple on a date. They are parking by a lake and having fun, experiencing Paradise by the Dashboard Light, until the young male character insists they're going to go all the way tonight. Uh, We get the baseball broadcast, part two. Uh, And this is, you know, the metaphor for the guy trying to bang. Yeah. Part three is stop right there. As they're about to consummate, the female character suddenly sings stop right there. She refuses to go any further unless the male character first promises to love her forever and marry her. Reluctant to make a long-term commitment, the male character repeatedly asks her to consent and promises to give his answer in the morning. And part four, praying for the end of time. Uh, Back in the present, both characters express how they can no longer stand each other, (laughs) remaining true to the vow he made on the night in the past. He is now praying for the end of time to relieve him of his obligation. So there you go. Um, So now Sarah saw Meatloaf as well live. Uh, She said until she had seen Meatloaf in concert, she had always thought that this whole series was like a joke, right? And it is. I mean, it's played out comedically, but she thought like, you know, he can't be being serious here. But then Meatloaf in concert about a series can be was basically like, you know, like when you're with someone and they're just not going to fuck like (laughs) and you just have to push them and like it's so ridiculous. Like he was not happy about the situation. She was not impressed at all. Oh, exactly. yeah. yeah. Here's what uh, Chat GPT had to say about this song. Uh, I always like to ask the AI to describe the lyrics. Okay. The song tells a narrative about a couple's teenage romance and their struggle with the concept of commitment. Uh, the lyrics revolve around a baseball metaphor, blah, blah, blah. We talked about that piece. Paradise by the dashboard light captures the intensity, confusion, and uncertainty of teenage love and explores the conflicting emotions associated with physical desire, commitment, and the fear of getting stuck in a long-term relationship. (laughs) Uh, I also, for fun, asked ChatGPT to interpret the baseball metaphor. Uh, So, again, on our other podcast, Narbos and Broomheads, where we've covered all the episodes of Degrassi and uh, a bunch in Degrassi, The Next Generation, and are about to wrap up my so-called life, We've had the conversation before about what are the bases in baseball. Yeah, that's right. Right. So uh, apparently there are differences based on, I mean, as much as like where you went to school. Like, yeah. But uh, according to ChatGPT, I guess this is the truth, everybody. Uh, it says first base in baseball, uh, reaching first base signifies kissing or light physical contact. Second base typically represents more intimate touching, such as caressing or fondling. (laughs) Okay. Third base signifies even more intimate actions, including oral sex or manual stimulation. Uh, Home run represents reaching home plate and scoring a point. In the context of the song, the home run symbolizes sexual intercourse or reaching the ultimate level of physical intimacy. So there you go. I think in the metaphor, that's probably as accurate as you can get. Yeah. I mean, I think everybody knows what like first and uh, home are. It's the debate yeah. is at second or third, right? Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> so uh, let's go over to song facts because the internet is uh, full of great information and, and opinions on the song. Uh, here's what some of the uh, commenters on song facts had to say. Uh, Ethine from Iowa said, "I bet the song has prevented more teen pregnancies than all the oh. abstinence uh, only school nonsense." <laughs> Oh, yeah, definitely. Uh, David from Youngstown, Ohio said, as for a squeeze play with two outs and a man on third, it's not a typical call, but it's not unheard of. And then he goes into the uh, way that it would be used. 
nerd. Yes, <laughs> yeah. def- def- defending it. There yeah. you go. Uh, James from Beloit, Wisconsin said, <laughs> must be nice to afford to only go to my- major league games. If those of you above would bother to go to minor league games, you'd see the squeeze play with two outs on a regular basis. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> That's what you get out of this song, really? Yep. Yeah, baseball. Uh, getting into that. So uh, surprisingly to me, there were there were less than 50 comments about the song on song meanings. Uh, okay. But uh, let's see if people uh, brought the goods here. Uh, we have the anti-poser who said, dude, I spent a year trying to figure out what the song was called and who sang it. Then one day I was randomly singing it and a buddy of mine was like, whoa, that's by Meatloaf. You have no idea how happy I was. Baby, baby, let me sleep on it. Let me sleep on it. But I always thought Meatloaf was gay. <laughs> <laughs> When was this posted? Uh, this was posted in 2004. You couldn't Google that or, or nope. Alta Vista that or whatever, whatever nope. the search engine was at the time? No, he's like, if there was only a device that could uh, yeah. give me this answer. Uh, Matthew KF, this is in 2005, just wrote, what a glorious asshole this man is. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I don't think the song lyrics hold up too well when you think about it. <laughs> sure don't. What? No, that's right. They're like, no, 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 it's a joke. It's funny. <laughs> yeah. Right? Uh, any other thoughts on the lyrics? Uh, one of the lyrics that I've always didn't know what, what to make of them, and maybe when you told me about how Meatloaf almost, his dad almost stabbed him after his mom died, it makes sense, but glowing like the metal on the edge of a knife. I never understood what that meant. <laughs> maybe that's what he's referencing, his, his dad trying to stab him. <laughs> the one that he was almost killed with, yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think maybe uh, his, his dick was so hard that it was uh, like a knife. Like, you've heard, I was so hard it could cut glass, or yeah, cut glass. Yeah. 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 So maybe, maybe. it was that. I don't know. Yeah. Right. I mean, like I said, uh, you know, looking at it, the lens, the way the lyrics are, and what the song is about, trying to pressure them. <laughs> yeah, not, not a good, not a good message for sure. But uh, 1977, everybody. 1977. Yeah, I take it for at, at a moment in time. Uh, I, I, you know, good lyrics in my opinion. Like, like I said, there you go. Good everybody. song, anyway. On the record, Barry effect, right. believes in yeah. the lyrics. <laughs> This is how you do it. This is how you do it. If you want to, if you want to score, yeah, exactly. Uh, and again, another song you had us choose was "Night Moves," which is about going to the drive-in and uh, getting on, yeah. getting it on, right? So, yeah, this is really painting me out to be a major creep here. <laughs> yeah. I gotta say, good job. All right, reception yes. time. <laughs> so I mentioned that Meatloaf was hugely successful in the UK, but this song actually never officially charted over there. Um, it did chart in the U.S., though. It debuted on the Billboard 100 during the week of August 12, 1978, about uh, three weeks after I was born. Uh, it was at number 82. It was between 5705 by City Boy and California Nights by Sweet. Uh, 5705 mm. is a pretty, t- pretty typical late 70s classic rock song with falsetto choruses. Uh, the song hit number eight in the U.K. and number 26 in the U.S., it was debuting during the same week, and I said, if you're into music from that time, you will like this track. I thought it was pretty good. California Nights by Sweet was also making its debut. It's not bad either, but not nearly as good as other Sweet singles. I did not bother looking up where it peaked. Uh, Paradise would peak at number 39 on the Billboard Hot 100 chart seven weeks later during the week of September 23rd. And even though it only peaked at number 39, you still know I pulled the top 10. <laughs> Of course, of course. September 23rd, 1978. 
Yeah. I was really surprised this is that's as far as the song made because, like I said, it's such a classic now, but it just didn't chart. But anyway, go ahead. What's the top ten? I'm guessing it's because it was eight minutes long, though. Yeah, probably. I'd have to double check. I don't know where the chart placement was for Bohemian Rhapsody because that would that would be, I guess, similar. Yeah, uh, for sure. Uh, number one, Boogie Oogie Oogie by A Taste of Honey. Uh, okay. Number two, Kiss You All Over by Exile. Uh, number three, Hopelessly Devoted to You by Olivia Newton-John. Uh, number four, Three Times a Lady by Commodores. Okay. Number five, An Everlasting Love by Andy Gibb. Uh, number six, Summer Nights, John Travolta, Olivia Newton-John, and the Grease cast. Uh, okay. Number seven, Don't Look Back by Boston. Number eight, Hot-Blooded by Foreigner. Uh, number nine, Hot Child in the City by Nick Gilder. And number 10, Reminiscing by Little River Band. The 70s, everybody. <laughs> That's, that's a, a typical 70s top 10. Uh, it was not much different in Canada, where Paradise actually peaked at number 11. Uh, okay. it, it hit the uh, number 11 on the charts during the week of October 14th, 1978. So the 10 songs that uh, kept it out of the top 10. Uh, number one, Hot Child in the City, Kiss You All Over at number two, Summer Nights at number three, Hopelessly Devoted to You at number four, and number five, Anne Murray with You Needed Me. <laughs> oh, Canada. <laughs> Uh, Don't Look Back at 6, Reminiscing at 7. At number 8, Kenny Loggins with Whenever I Call You Friend. Uh, uh, Boogie Oogie Oogie at number 8. and uh, Sorry, at number 9. And at number 10, more CanCon, Burton Cummings with Break It to Them Gently. Okay. Um, I could not find a full edition of RPM Magazine for that week, so I don't know if Walt said anything. Um, In the Netherlands, the single became Meatloaf's biggest all-time hit, Reaching number one at the end of 1978, and again going to be a, uh, going on to be a hit there in 1988. In Belgium, the single stalled at number two for uh, five weeks, being blocked from the number one position the whole time by YMCA by the Village People. Oh, there you go. Uh, in various Dutch all-time charts, such as the Radio Two Top 2000, uh, the song consistently charts inside the top 30. Um, other week, uh, weekly chart placements, again, two in Belgium, and uh, I mean, that's pretty much it. Um, in terms of certifications, platinum in Australia, platinum in Canada, platinum in the ne- Netherlands, gold in the UK, platinum in the United States. Uh, in an interview with uh, Foley after Meatloaf's death, Chris Willman of Variety described the song as Rock's greatest duet and potentially the greatest duet ever recorded. I debate that fiercely. Uh, Foley replied that the song was pretty close behind Up Where We Belong by J- Joe Cocker and Jennifer Warrens. And what? <laughs> so he was like, oh, it was, it was number two behind Up Where We Belong, which I would argue is absolutely not the greatest duet ever recorded. Yeah, What would you consider the greatest duet? Not that. Um, no, <laughs> I mean, I don't know. I, I Just off the top of my head, like, didn't would Beyonce have sung with other people? Rihanna? Like... Yeah. You know, like, I don't know. Um, any, well, I was going to say, like, Michael Jackson, but his duets were pretty hideous. So Yeah, the girl is mine. No. Ugh, that's the worst. <laughs> uh, Paradise has over 180 million streams on Spotify, and the official music video has almost 80 million views on YouTube after being posted for the last 10 years. Uh, both of those figures are of June, or as of June of 2023, and... Uh, I got a short section for you on covers and samples. You want to do it? Sure. 
So you'll never guess, but this song is 100% an original. I agree, it's 100% original, yeah. <laughs> uh, there are only two samples listed on who sampled. One is by Jim Steinman, who sampled this in Love, Death, and an American Guitar. Uh, the other one is by The Hood Internet with a 1977 Megamix. Uh, as for covers, there are 12 listed on who sampled. That includes a Twinkle Twinkle Little Rockstar version. So if you want your baby to listen to a lullaby of a song about two teenagers <laughs> fucking, then you can have it. This is it, yeah. All right, uh, let's go to this music video. Okay. <laughs> so Meatloaf convinced the label to give him $30,000 US, which would be hundred and fifty grand in today's money, to produce films of live on, uh, on soundstage performances of three of the songs from Bad Out of Hell. 35mm prints of these films were distributed to movie theaters holding midnight screenings of the Rocky Horror Picture Show as a short subject to play before the feature. I, I'm going to say this right away. I would rather watch the fucking like advertisements that they put on before movies than uh, yeah, in this, <laughs> this yeah. video. I, I don't... What? Where did this $30,000 go? Like what, <laughs> like, what What? was spent on it? I mean, it must be the equipment, right? Like, that's... Like, I guess, but yeah, I suppose. Catering? at the wardrobe. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> nope. Mm. Uh, very few of these prints still exist or are in playable condition, but the video became a staple of MTV in the network's early years. Uh, Rundgren speculated in a 2017 Billboard interview that because the video was so long, it basically gave VJs a piss break time. <laughs> so, yeah, that's right. Heard. Yeah. <laughs> Cocaine break. Uh, yeah, yes. Actually, that's much more plausible for uh, 80s MTV. Yeah. Uh, even though Ellen Foley sang the duet on the record, it was Carla DeVito who appear, uh, appeared in the Paradise video, as Foley had a previous commitment in the Broadway revival of Hair. As a result, many fans believed it was DeVito's voice on the record, robbing Foley of the credit. Yeah, It was some time before she made peace with this. Uh, she said, it did take a while in a Song Facts interview, there were a few years where I was pretty pissed off. Then I came to the point where I felt that if anyone cared enough to know that I sang on the record, that was good enough for me. And I also had a pretty high profile with my career in uh, recording, touring, television, film, and Broadway. So my resume has been out there. I mean, I'm assuming that there was just, she's like, I made money from it. So fuck it. Yeah. What a residual she would have got. She would have got regardless of the video anyway. But like I said, for me personally, like I said, being a fan of Night Court that I was and knew that she was on Night Court, I knew the name and I thought she sang on it, but because the video wasn't her, it did throw me off to be quite honest with you. <laughs> uh, I've got notes on this video, but I want you to describe it first, please. Well, actually, before that, one more thing that uh, Ellen Foley said about not being in the video. She yep. said, you're singing backgrounds and then you, he goes up to you and sticks his tongue down your throat for 12 minutes. He sure does. So I guess that's why he did. Ugh. So this video, okay, like I said, I think it's a... It, a piece of business. Uh, you got Meatloaf there who is wearing, I don't even know how to describe it. Is, is it the puffy shirt from Seinfeld? Is it like a vampire shirt? Uh-huh. Uh, yeah. And he is just, this is basically a, a stage production of the song where they're singing the song and, and they're all on stage. But Meatloaf, like I said, he's looking not a good looking man. And I'm not trying to. It's fine. <laughs> My first... And it gets to the one part where he's about to did let me sleep on a part. And Meatloaf goes over to this Carla, what's her name? Carla DeVito girl. Yeah. And it just starts making out with her hardcore <laughs> on the stage. Uh-huh. I mean, you yeah. say you feel bad by saying it. My very first line in my notes, Meatloaf looks like such a sloppy mess. <laughs> he would have given so many fat kids hope. 
Uh, <laughs> I also said, seeing how he gestures and acts as he sings, you can just imagine a young Jack Black studying this video. Yeah, that's that's a good point. Yeah, yeah, because like I was like, that dude looks disgusting. Yeah, he does. It uh, it is it is quite the look with the with the shirt and then the the size of him and the hair and they got the handkerchief going. And he's like sweaty guess, and gross. Like, ugh. yeah, just not, not someone that uh, I don't think Carla DeVito would have any sexual <laughs> desires towards. I got to say, uh, the syncing of her vocals is well done though. I can't imagine it would have been terribly challenging because the music video is lip synced. Yep. Um, so it's just live performance footage, right? So, it's not as theatrical as if you were sitting there in a theater watching a musical, but that's kind of what they're mimicking, uh, just on a smaller screen. Um, and that's all it is for three minutes and 40 seconds. It is the two of them singing to each other. And I'm like, okay, I guess that's all there is. But then we get to the baseball commentary. Yep. We cut to old timey black and white baseball footage. Yep. And then it cuts back and forth between the baseball footage and Meatloaf and Carla DeVito making out. Yeah. And the intensity of the making out increases as they go through the bases. And then I wrote, it's fucking gross. And I almost puked. <laughs> That's not a bad description. He's like, they ugh, ugh. So then they get to the stop right there section and Meatloaf looks pissed that she isn't yep. letting him fuck. Like, yeah. He's got, like, rage in his face. Um, <laughs> yeah. Also, I know that it's performance art, but Meatloaf's wedding ring in full display throughout the uh, video. Uh, oh, I never noticed that. Uh, and then when she asks him what it's going to be, you know, what's it going to be, boy, yes or no, Meatloaf's eyes bug out like saucers as he <laughs> contemplates what to say. <laughs> uh, so those are my notes. Do you have any other uh, notes that you'd like to... Uh... <laughs> <laughs> no, share. no. Uh, these were my notes. I'll just give them the verbatim. Uh, what a piece of business. Meatloaf looks like a pirate or vampire. The Seinfeld puffy shirt. What's with the scarf? Making out with that poor girl. <laughs> uh, bad video. And uh, I, I also made another note here. On the album cover of the actual album itself, there's a picture of Meatloaf dressed and he's grabbing the ass of a girl, which is... <laughs> just... Yeah. like, And again, like... It, if it was like a total joke, I mean, if it was a joke, it would still be bad today, right? But yeah, again, for sure. uh, Sarah believes it was, it's still not a joke. It's like, no, like that, my ass, <laughs> like that's yeah. what Meatloaf is yeah, saying. So. so not, not so great, but uh, yeah. Not the best message, no. Uh, let's rate it. Okay. All right. So I'm going to pass it to you to you, uh, rate the uh, video first. The video? Um, this is not a good video. Uh, the, the quality is bad. I mean, it's just them on stage singing, which is, you know, not really a bad thing, but the making out, the way Meatloaf looks and the way he's staring at the camera and, and the, you know, it, it's just not a, it's not a good video. <laughs> I'd go a two out of 10. Wow. Wow. Uh, you're going to give the lowest rating. Uh, Jamie gave it a three. He okay. wrote, he wrote a eh, not great. Uh, I gave it a seven, <laughs> a seven. I said, this is what I said for a music video that is a live performance. From a time before music videos were a thing, and for an eight-minute song that I'm not really into, I was entertained. Okay. <laughs> I mean, disgusted at parts, but uh, I entertained enough. I gave it a seven. Uh, okay. What about the song? All right. This part we're going to differ. <laughs> to me, this is an all-timer. I think it's one of the, I, I love the song. It uh, brings you back. Uh, in the Flynn household growing up, we had this uh, Bad Out of Hell on uh, vinyl, which I still have to this day. I have my father's copy. 
Uh, we had an eight track, we had it on cassette, and we had it on CD. So uh, <laughs> I'm very familiar with it. <laughs> uh, I love the song. I love the way it, it changes. You know, the way the music changes in the different parts. Uh, I, I think it's from that the iconic guitar riff right at the beginning, right through to the end, to the pray until the end of time part. Uh, I, I just love the music of it all. Like I said, the, the message of it is probably not very good, mm-hmm. but uh, all-time song to me, 9.5 out of 10. Oh, wow. All right. Uh, Jamie said, I hate meatloaf, both the food and the artist, and he gave it 3 out of 10. <laughs> okay. I said, I don't really like the song that much, but it's definitely amusing. Still, looking at it through 2023 eyes, it's troublesome, but I still gave it 5 out of 10. <laughs> So yeah, de- definitely troublesome. You look at it through, through these eyes, but uh, I just think, you know, music wise, the way it's composed and everything like that. And like, I'm no music nerd or anything like that. I, I don't play music. I can't sing or anything like that, but I think it's really well put together and it's a great song. Now, I'd say this album, I'm going to go on the record uh, saying, if not the second, my probably f- third favorite album of all time. Oh, wow. Yeah, I'm a big fan. Uh, I love it. I love every, I love all the music. I love Meat Love the way he sings it. I said the only ones, only albums I would put above this uh, would be uh, Appetite for Destruction, and maybe Up to Here by the Tragically Hip. Other than those two, I think this would be my favorite album of all time. That's don't don't, don't at me. <laughs> that's an incredible top three. Uh, if people do want to at you though, where do they find you? Oh, they could find me at Barry Air Flynn, which uh, would uh, if someone does at me, that would increase my Twitter uh, <laughs> atness uh, tenfold because nobody ever does. And if I wanted to learn more about like paranormal activity and folk tales and uh, Newfoundland stories, uh, yeah. where would I go? Like, what podcast could I listen to? If you went to, uh, uh, you went to the podcast called the Some Weird Podcast. It's a podcast I don't want my sister, where we do exactly what Alan just said. We uh, talk about folklore. We talk about stories about Newfoundland. We talk about weird stories. We actually did an episode about weird song lyrics where Alan was a part of, actually. And we did talk about Jim Steinman and Total Eclipse of the Heart. On nice. That specific album. But uh, uh, yeah, no, uh, www.someweirdpodcast.com, I think, and that could be wrong, and I apologize to my sister Chrissy if that is incorrect, <laughs> but uh, if you look up Some Weird Pod uh, on Twitter, or if you, if you just look it up on wherever you listen to your podcast, you'll find us. Yeah, look it up and, before next so, week, because you're joining us again, so you'll exactly. get another chance. <laughs> yeah, I'll, I'll do a better plug. Yeah, uh, for this podcast, you can go to, uh, well, Jamie, who's not here, but should be joining us next week, uh, his website is... Uh, megamix.com.com so uh, go and check that out we are at Super Hits Cast on Twitter at Super Hits Podcast on Instagram Super Hits Podcast at gmail.com my handle is Slip with Five Eyes or Slip and next week we're talking about Vanilla Ice the Iceman uh, <laughs> Ice Ice Baby another one That's thanks great. thanks Barry appreciate it yeah, there you go alright <laughs> see you all in a week <laughs> <laughs>